Welcome to the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. This is our opportunity once a week to come before you and uh, this podcast to uh, look at the top 10 articles that uh, were that came up on the uh, dial with uh, for the what readers were reading. And it's our opportunity just to uh, walk through some of these so uh, that you get them, you'll see them in the newsletter that comes out on Tuesday of every week. And uh, so they're the top 10 articles that the readers, as they were reading at the, the, the 56 or so articles that we have, uh, read the most and they came up from one to 10. So uh, we enjoy just uh, going through these. Uh, that's myself, Dr. Dominic Aquila, and also Paul Harrell. And uh, just to tease you and to help you and to help you uh, go and look at these articles, look at them. They may be useful for your own personal use, uh, maybe a Bible study group you're in, a Sunday school class, or just general discussion with other members of the church or people that need articles that would encourage them or instruct them or direct them. So we're uh, pleased to have this weekly review of these articles and trust that they're helpful to you. So, Paul, it's always a joy to be with you and yes, uh, trust that we'll uh, have a good uh, yeah. good time. It's a good variety of uh, articles. It is. It is. You know what yeah. I noticed, though? I noticed that, you know, in previous top 10 lists, you know, we were getting used to, you know, to, to, to reading about COVID-19 and there would maybe be one or two articles about that. That's kind of fallen off the, the, the map. And unfortunately, I think that may change by next week. So, or maybe <laughs> sure. in the weeks to come, we'll see. Exactly. Well, it, it is definitely coming back. The uh, Delta um, variant seems to have uh, gone through the population very uh, more significantly uh, than um, what the first variant did. So, but here we are, the first article, and we still have some uh, things that are left over from and uh, commentaries on the. Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA's General Assembly, which met in St. Louis at the end of June and the first part of July. Uh, and so we have a, an opinion piece by the Reverend uh, Brent Hor- Horan. He was a uh, pastor at the first uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh area, the Penn Hills. Uh, and uh, in it, he was on the Overtures Committee. The Overtures Committee is the committee at General Assembly that has a representative uh, from uh, one ruling elder and one teaching elder, one minister, one elder from uh, each presbytery, at least they can be there. And they sort of like are a mini assembly and they receive all the overtures and they wrestle through them. They put them together, they cobble them and, and so forth. So, uh, so that's what he was on. And so he's uh, now reporting on uh, in this article, the definitive meaning of Overture 23, which was approved by the PCA General Assembly. And Overture uh, 23, uh, the meaning of Overture 23 is a helpful guide to PCA elders, uh, presters, as they vote on the proposed amendment to Book of Church Order 16.4. Now, these, there were two overtures that uh, did result in the General Assembly uh, setting uh, down to the presbyteries amendments to the Book of Church Order, which is the constitution, one well, part of the constitution of the uh, PCA. And uh, so we have this one, which is from over to 23, which gives us the amendment to BCO or Book of Church Order 16-4, and then Overture uh, 37, which he uh, just touched on very slightly here, uh, is dealing with an amendment, uh, two amendments to the uh, Book of Church Order that deal with 
uh, church officers uh, that will be in chapter 21 and then chapter 24. The chapter 21 deals with ministers, chapter 24 with ruling elders and deacons. So he's only dealing with the one, uh, adding a whole paragraph to um, uh, BCO um, 16.4. So he just goes through and explains uh, the processes because this was one of the very significant amendments that was has that arose from uh, the whole revoice movement, uh, which uh, really got started up and became very high vis had high visibility and public attention, going back to July of uh, 2018, and it's consumed uh, quite a bit of time in the General Assembly, uh, producing a study paper report on human sexuality, and then these uh, two overtures. So basically what it comes down to and uh, is what the um, uh, what this overture says and what it's calling uh, for us to, uh, what, what will be voted on, because the General Assembly votes on it, uh, then it goes down to the presbyteries, there are 88 presbyteries, <clears throat> you need two-thirds of the presbyteries to approve uh, the wording here um, by majority vote in each presbytery. And if two-thirds come, then it's voted on again at the next General Assembly. So what is it dealing with? Uh, it's dealing with a, a man who is called, um, anyone who's called into um, uh, in, into uh, service as an officer. So that's uh, whether it's a minister, an elder, a deacon. And it says this, uh, this is the final words, and he goes through the history of this, uh, uh, Brett does. Uh, Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity, parenthesis, such as, but not limited to, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, close parenthesis, that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of a fallen desires, such as, but not limited to same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. That's got a powerful lot of words, and it's uh, written with a number of uh, in, uh, dependent and independent clauses here. Uh, but the basic thrust of this is to uh, give a definition to what does it mean above reproach, especially in this day and age with the whole question of um, the, this, the principles of sexuality arising from also the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and the application, what is the, that really teaching and meaning with reference to um, sexual morality. So it's an interesting um, article, and it's very good. I think uh, Brent did a uh, great job of explaining it. First of all, giving a little bit of history so you can see how it was worked through the, the uh, Overtures Committee. And then he gives some explanations at the end as to why he would encourage presbyteries to vote in favor of this amendment which would amend BCO uh, chapter 16-4. So Paul, were you able to follow all that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was and, you know, following it really through the General Assembly process, uh, really this, the entire, uh, you know, I guess you'd call it overture process is certainly a, a lesson for me because it uh, is something I haven't actually ever done. You know, I've never followed something this closely because I, uh, but I obviously am because I care about the substance of the issue. And I think it's very um, important and something that deserves the type of debate and the type of thought that, um, you know, that we're going to have now. I mean, not only have you had this with the Overtures Committee, you had it at GA in St. Louis. Now you're going to have this debate come to 88 Presbyteries. It's going to work its way through. That's the process that's envisioned here. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. Well, encouraged you to uh, read through it and to just be careful in parsing it. And there are other articles that we're going to have uh, running on the Accord Report as we uh, explain more of what this uh, scenario means. But I think Brent Horan has uh, done a great job in uh, at least giving us the background and data that will be very helpful. Now, a second um, uh, article then that comes up is by Neil Shenvey, who is a Christian apologist. And the title is DeYoung, referring to Kevin DeYoung, uh, Thompson, referring to Greg Thompson, who uh, until recently was a minister in the PCA, and then Duke uh, Kwan, that is Duke Kwan, uh, who is, is a minister in the PCA. And it says, so is DeYoung, Thompson, and Kwan, colon, seeing the danger. Uh, Thompson and Kwan had written a book on reparations. Uh, DeYoung, uh, Kevin DeYoung had done a a written a review of the book and then there was a response that came from uh, Thompson and Quan um in essence defending the uh the uh the themes and the propositions they had in the book over against which de young had uh, taken some exceptions and uh, so forth now in this particular article what uh, neil shenvey does is not so much to take a particular side as much as to look at it as an apologist in terms of the style of argumentation. What is, how are you going about dealing with, are you dealing with what uh, the substance of the matter did, was the Young's uh, uh, book review fair? Did it uh, deal and en engage in ideas that were in the book on reparations? Uh, and then uh, when these uh, two men, the authors, Thompson and Kwan, wrote, were they interacting with the ideas that DeYoung raised in his review? And what he basically uh, concludes, uh, Shenvey does, is that the, uh, they had basically missed the point, and he goes back to pick up a term that I had never heard before until I read this, called bulverism, that's B-U-L-V-E-R-I-S-M, which he gets from uh, C.S. Lewis and his book, uh, God in the Dock. And he quotes it and just mentions what bulverism is. He says, uh, this is from C.S. Lewis, you must show that a man is wrong before you start explaining why he is wrong. Uh, the modern method is to assume without discussion that he is wrong, and then distract his attention from this, that it is the real issue, by busily explaining how he became so silly. In the course of the last 15 years, I have found this vice become uh, so common that I have invented a, a, a name for it, and it's called bulverism. 
So then that's the quote. And now uh, Shenvi then says, Bulverism does not attempt to show that a person's claims are false. Rather, it assumes that a person's claims are false and then shifts the discussion to the person's motives or hidden agenda or subconscious desires. Needless to say, reasoning based on Bulverism is really invalid. Yet, this is precisely the reasoning that Thompson and Kwan employ at numerous points in their article. So acceptance of this mode of argument will have ramifications far beyond the race or behind the issue that is here. And he goes on to then explain why bulverism is uh, uh, is dangerous when you're having trying to have a discussion about ideas. So you present an idea. Uh, someone else says, well, I'm not sure about that idea and the way you've broken it up. Uh, it seems like your proposition is flawed. Here are the reasons why it thinks that, um, or how I believe that you have made the point, uh, and so forth. But uh, you you don't want to deal with it, and so you turn away from the idea, and you begin to say, well, I know that, notice that you went to such and such a school, or that you have this kind of um, philosophical background to your uh, reasoning and thinking, and so forth, and you're not dealing with the idea interacting with it, trying to understand more of what the author said or what the reviewer was saying. So I think this is a, a interesting thing to look at, and it's a helpful uh, article, I think, to not only deal with the uh, the case in hand, which is the review that uh, Kevin Young wrote originally, and then the review of the review that we have here, but to note how people make their argument uh, it's sort of a guilt by association kind of approach. Uh, you must be in that camp. Therefore, when you say these things, it, you know, we don't have to listen to you or something of that aging. That's what C.S. Lewis defines as bulverism. And Shenvi brings it to us and explains it. It gives illustrations uh, of this whole process. So um, we need to be careful, uh, Paul, about not being yep. bulverists. Boulevardists. I tell you what, what's interesting to me about this piece, it's really good, is those of us, or at least let me just speak for myself. It is it's it's my suspicion <laughs> or my belief that a lot of this conflict, you know, in the church right now, you know, comes down between it's how it's been described on this program and uh, the the articles. You have your confessionalists and you have your progressives. Um, you don't want to use the word liberal, right? Or they say, no, we fought that 20th century battle. But anyway, so, um, and the criticism from the, the confessionalist side or the conservative side is that we have people in the church who are really wanting the approval of the culture. And, uh, I would also interject here based on this, that not only do they want the approval of the culture, they also are adopting the way the culture argues. This is exactly how politically, domestically, uh, uh, in, in terms of domestic politics. This is how the left in America argues now. They are using bulverism, as you said, Dominic. And what I, what that simple way to understand that for me is you approach your adversary or your the person you're arguing with with the understanding that you are the moral uh, superior. You are you already have the moral high ground. And so you don't even address and you don't even have to debate the uh, the issues. And he does this here. And I'll read a portion of the article. 
Uh, however, the most troubling element of Thompson and Quan's piece and their claim that DeYoung errors are a consequence of his centering white theology. Rather than answer his questions or demonstrate his theological mistakes, they focus on the ways in which DeYoung's review redeploys prejudicial methodology with deep historical roots in white supremacy. End quote. I will simply quote Thompson and Quan at some length from various parts of their article. Mo- put most simply, our view is this. White, while Reverend DeYoung, not white Reverend, sorry, while Reverend DeYoung, DeYoung's uh, Uh, subtitle indicates that he believes his review to be an expression of a theological project. We believe his review actually to be expressive of a cultural project that seeks perennially to justify itself on theological grounds. And that cultural project is one uh, inelegant and highly disturbing phrase, white supremacy. So that's bulverism just in terms of, hey, we don't have to address your arguments because we're already better than you. And this, and to me, it's an example of people in the church uh, who are adopting the culture's way of arguing, which is you are going to just demonize the person. Yeah. So th- that's a very helpful thing. And again, I think that will be one of those articles that um, instead of just now dealing with the book, just say, how do we ourselves conduct uh, and, and reason through uh, an article, a review, a book, uh, especially if we don't tend to agree with its propositions and its themes and its formulations. So uh, we need to really engage the ideas instead of uh, detracting by saying, well, you really can't trust that because, and then you attach it to something that you see as an off base or uh, something that's beneath you or something that is um, you consider uh, in a uh, uh, in a way that's beneath you and your your thinking. So a uh, very helpful article in that regard. So I'm glad for that analysis that helps us beyond just the what the book itself has dealt with. And it's interesting then as you read about the uh, what Neil Shemby has say, he you know you don't know much more about the what the book was and what Nia, uh, what the uh, uh, young said. So uh, the both are linked in the article so that you can read. Uh, the about the book itself from them and also about the review and the review itself from uh, DeYoung and then come back and read what Shenby has to say. All right. Article number three is a very sad one because uh, it deals with uh, a minister who was in from what appears now to be inadvertently shot by his wife uh, in in our reform circles. That is uh, Reform Presbyterian Church of North America. RPCNA, sometimes uh, called the Covenanters. Um, the uh, this was in San Diego. It's the title was "Wife Will Not Be Charged in Pastor hu- Pastor Husband's Shooting Death in Lemon Grove." Lemon Grove is a uh, suburb of San Diego, and it says Noah Shepherd, who was 29, uh, was pastor of San Diego Reformed Presbyterian Church, a church of the RPC of uh, North America. So what happened apparently is that uh, Gabriella Shepard, his wife, who is 26 and pregnant with their third child, was originally slated to be arraigned in El Cajon Courthouse on um, that Thursday, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But the DA's spokeswoman, uh, Tanya Sierra, said in a statement that the charges are not being filed this time. The investigation is ongoing and we'll review the case as we get more information. 
Uh, Shepard was held into custody without bail in connection with her husband's death, but was expected then to be released. And uh, eventually after that, uh, she was released. So the uh, apparently what, what happened is you look at the number of stories that were written. We just have one here and I have there are some links to uh, others that give it try and give a little more detail uh, is that uh, when uh, Nicholas uh, Shepard came into the house he entered not through the front door but it came through the back and his wife was uh, sort of startled by that and uh before anything could happen she knew what was happening she thought there was a uh, someone trying to break in and uh, so she uh used her gun so um the um so that's basically what the uh article is about and why she will not be charged but it just leaves now a uh, woman, uh, wife um, with uh, two children, one on the way that, uh, you know, just they just started their ministry at this uh, church, this uh, San Diego Reformed Presbyterian Church. And uh, then this happened. Uh, also, Nicholas was a, uh, Noah rather, was a graduate of uh, Westminster Seminary in Escondido, which is just a little bit north of uh, San Diego. So we just need to be in prayer for this family, for the children as they grow up, Gabriella, she heals from uh, this uh, terrible uh, ordeal and experience, and uh, trust that the way the uh, the district attorney's office has ruled so far uh, will stand, and it's seen as a terrible tragedy and accident. Yeah, I agree, Dominic. That that okay. last part there specifically. Um, that this would be, uh, uh, you know, still considered an accident and uh, and that she would be able to heal. Well, it, those are the things that are just really difficult for us to put together all the time. So just definitely hold that family and that church uh, up in prayer. Okay, the uh, third, the fourth article is uh, dealing with um, McLean Bible Church in um, in Virginia, McLean, Virginia. It's um, a very large church and it grew especially over the last 20 years with its founding pastor uh, then he uh, stepped down and he they called um uh platt to david platt to be the the pastor and the there's been some tension in this church and because of its size where it's located the influence it has because of the people who are in it and so forth it's made the news over the possibility of a lawsuit uh, from opposition, and the, there's a, a party spirit basically developing here, or has developed. The suburban D.C. megachurch recently uh, scuffle over race and politics is symptomatic of a broader evangelical rift. And the background to it, as the pieces are sort of coming together, and as you hear from the different sides, with no bulverism involved and intended here, is that... Uh, there appears to have been a move away from just the, well, not just the, but the, the preaching, the expository preaching of the word, having the outreach ministries that were going on that led to the church's growth and development, the internal growth as well with small groups and the like, uh, to beginning to uh, deal more with things uh, like uh, critical race theory or intersectionality or all that and mix it into the life of the congregation. And so that appears to be what's here from the article. And there are other articles like it that have uh, spoken about this. So the shift 
has created a stir and a division. So when they were having elections of elders, uh, the uh, which require 75% majority for election of any man to, to be an elder, uh, they failed to receive it. And this is the first time in the history of the church that that has ever happened. So we can just, again, this is a matter of prayer, but it's also, we're going to have another article coming up in this top 10 of when churches begin to shift uh, from their historic place and movement there, it does have ripple effects and maybe even uh, earthquake effects in the life of the church. And so something like that may be happening here at this church, which in the evangelical world is would be considered a, a solid Bible-believing, expository-based um, uh, evangelistic church. Yeah, I think David Platt was one of the first, uh, I mean, you know, I knew he was reformed in his soteriology and, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace. I, so I'm familiar uh, with David Platt just in that, uh, you know, you know, learning, you know, his his point of view on that. And then, um, you know, I've kind of followed him a little bit and I've definitely been aware of what has been coming from, you know, his pulpit recently. I mean, I can attest this article is correct when he talks about, you know, there has been more of a uh, critical race theory element to it. And certainly stuff that he's preached on. And uh, it seems to have rubbed uh, some people the wrong way. Uh, there's this one part of the article. Uh, it, it reads online posts on blogs, Facebook and email charged Platt with pushing critical race theory, revising biblical teaching on sexuality and aligning with the Southern Baptist Convention, despite McLean's constitutional prohibition of affiliating with any denomination. I've been following this story for the last two weeks, Dominic, and I will tell you what's interesting about it is the McLean Bible Church, in their constitution, it is black and white. They are a non-denominational church, and they may not be affiliated with any denomination. It says it clear as day. The first month, according to records that you can, in multiple records online, the first month that he took the job in 2017, McLean Bible Church became affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. And there's not like a, from what I understand, there's not like any sort of, uh, you know, you, you know, one foot in, one foot out. I mean, according to what you can find out there, McLean Bible Church is affiliated with the SBC in the same level that any SBC church is affiliated with the SBC. And so where the rub has now come in is that David Platt, from the pulpit, has denied multiple times or, or one time that I saw and then I saw also there was a there was a quote of him in a congregational meeting where you know they were asking him are we a member or are we not and the answer was I mean it was it was all over the place because the answer is yes and so he's from the pulpit saying no we are not a member people say we're a member of the Southern Baptist Convention no we are not it's very interesting that he would say that because it is extremely easy to prove that they, in fact, are a member of the SBC. So uh, there's certainly, I think, it's going to be more to this story that comes out, Dominic, in the mm -hmm. weeks to come. Well, and the reason it's even here is that uh, it, because of the size of the church and because it's unique place uh, in close to the, uh, the, the, the capital of the United States, um, and just all the players that are in it, the, the, what happens there uh, does have ripples throughout the 
evangelical world, and that's the reason it's made the headlines. So it's not only in the secular press, but this article is actually uh, taken out of um, Christianity Today and what it's reporting on it. So uh, again, it's a read for us at how do we go through difficulties in handling issues, um, and that 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 um, we deal with the issues face on, but we do it honestly and with virtue in a perfect world, which unfortunately we don't live in, uh, we can have a sit down and we can uh, work through this and that and negotiate something that would be appealing. But if people feel like they're threatened, uh, then that's where the problems uh, begin to, to arise. So um, an interesting article, just again, for us to all to be more aware of what's taking place in our broader church and the spillover effects of some of the debates that we're having. And with that, uh, the uh, next article really uh, helps us to touch on this. And this is uh, article number five. And article number five is a response to uh, a um, article that we had, uh, a, a, an opinion piece that we had in the Aquila report uh, called the PCA conflict over the moral law. And uh, this uh, reply, uh, so it's an editorial reply, it's like an op-ed piece uh, written by Ryan Sparks, who is a, a pastor uh, in um, at the Old Orchard Church in Webster Grove, Missouri, that's just a suburb of St. Louis, in which he takes a contrary position from the original author. Uh, and he didn't see the uh, the arguments that the uh, first Arthur was talking about, and this goes back to what we just said about the McLean Church, that uh, people sitting in the same room, hearing the same things can come with different conclusions. And the question now, how do we go about negotiating that, getting it, you know, trying to make sense of it without going into the, I don't want to overuse the word now that we have it out there, bulverism. So anyway, he uh, Ryan Sparks then just I respectfully disagree with how the author of the PCA conflict uh, over the moral law has framed things in his piece, uh, basically under two headings only, conservative and progressive. And so he explains why he deals with that. And by the way, he, there's no bulverism here. He deals with the ideas and presents it. Um, the author's perspective on where various officers in our denomination are coming from is so radically different from mine. I have uh, to wonder if we were even in the same place as what he was saying. So he basically says, I observed in my meeting that there, uh, there is a concern for God's moral law. And he refers to Westminster larger catechism chap, uh, question 93, but I was at the general assembly. I was listening intently to everything that was said in the microphones. I heard no one give a voice, uh, a compromise of God's moral law, which clearly decries all forms of homosexuality is sin. So um, the uh, he so he he heard something different in the debate that was taking place. Uh, he uh, Ryan uh, also mentions a few other things as we deal with this that uh, from what I heard from many dissenting voters in the General Assembly um, was not a progressivist agenda, but a reasoned assertion that those who came uh, before us did a pretty fine job of upholding these things and and how they set up or already set BCL 24, which deals with that amendment that I mentioned earlier with Article 1. This BCL 24 change 
would be dealing with what comes out of Overture 37. And I'm sure in a future uh, article, we will get to that uh, amendment as well. So um, here's uh, basically a call for let us sit down and reason together. Uh, and he, so he asked the question, Ryan, does, is God's moral law really that what's at the center of the debate inside the PCA, or is this a case of jostling with windmills? I'm praying that it is the latter and not that we, and that we will work to improve our efforts to reason together. So it's a uh, conciliatory piece trying to say that some language sometimes can be exaggerated. That's his framework. And now hopefully he and the author can sit down and have a conversation and give anecdotal illustrations of what they are referring to. But it's this kind of um, article, that the, the original one and then this response that can show how two sides can appear to be correct, and but they hopefully are dealing with it in a way that's constructive and uh, builds instead of destroys or undergirds. Yeah. I agree. It's a good article. Uh, it definitely, uh, you know, definitely is another perspective on that earlier piece that did run on the Aquila report. Yeah. Now, by the way, I did uh, tell the author um, when he sent it to me that I didn't agree with his um, formulations, by the way. And so he and I had the discussion already, but I said I didn't write the article originally. So you hopefully have to have that discussion. You know, the two authors need to sit down and discuss that and I but I didn't I, I could run you know with what I believe uh, was being said and so just so that uh, full disclosure uh, but we at the cool report have believed that we have uh, intelligent um, uh, careful readers they are discerning and so we are not afraid to put ideas out there that appear to take a different position that let's say I would editorially as the editor uh, and let there be earnest discussion on the merits and on the formulations and on the ideas so that we don't get off into uh, just splattering someone with things that may not be even within their wheelhouse at all. So um, we're, uh, we want rational, rational and reasonable thinking, writing, and discussion. I think that's the way it really ought to be. And if it doesn't happen that way, then that's where we wind up um, having all sorts of other controversies. All right. Now, number six, uh, here's where we see one effect of the uh, probably not handling a critical thing well. And this has brought up, been brought up in other articles in different ways, not only with the Episcopal Church, which this article deals with, but also with uh, other what we would call mainline churches. And it's entitled The Death of the Episcopal Church is Near. Now, so that's a sort of a foreboding kind of title. And as someone is Episcopalian, they probably would, don't want to hear it if they especially love their church. They definitely don't want to hear it. Uh, but one of the most troubling things about the future of the Episcopal Church is that the average member is incredibly old. And so just doing uh, the analysis of the uh, makeup, the membership, that <clears throat> for all of its pretense of being hip with culture, uh, the hip, the younger hip culture isn't coming into the Episcopal Church, at least not in enough numbers to replace those who are older and passing away. So he says one of the things that they do have is they have been uh, given a lot of money. Uh, 
So it says when 25,000 people are leaving through death and only 5,000 are being replaced through children who stick around, the end is near. I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to believe that the Episcopalians will no longer exist in 2040. Can the domination continue when it's money, uh, when it has money, but no people? That's a future that may be facing the Episcopal Church. According to their financial finance office, the nomination has $400 million in trust, $11 billion in a pension plan for retired clergy, and another $4.5 billion in assets held at the parish and diocese level. To put it bluntly, money is not the issue. So this is one of those times when you could have a beautiful building maintained uh, and it can keep going without the offerings of the free will offerings of the people of God. But the question that comes up is, is what's going on? What's driving these people out or le what's leading them to uh, leave? It's not only death. Uh, they're leaving other churches. There have been the divisions within the Episcopal Church to form a number of other Anglican communions. And uh, so the, the so this becomes a sort of a case study. And what happens when a church gets, to use a phrase that we'll see in a moment and that we're has become popularized, gets woke. And so someone has come up with a little banter, uh, banner phrase, get woke, go broke. Now, in this case, the Episcopals will get their woke, but they didn't have, they're not going to go broke, but they were going to lose members, is what he's basically uh, saying at this, in this article. So it's just a case study. By looking at numbers, crunching numbers and people and where they're going and what's going on, especially if you look at in case of the history of the church and uh, how beneficial it has been uh, so much in culture over uh, over the centuries. In fact, the the first uh, believers who landed in 1607 in um, Jamestown uh, were all uh, Anglican or Episcopalian. It was the uh, when Virginia was established as a colony, it was the um, state church for a long time, uh, even after the Constitution was adopted in the Bill of Rights about uh, the church the state, church and state separation. No, they, they continued for a period of time as the state church. So the, the Episcopal Church goes way back to at least 1607, uh, which one of the first uh, settlements in the uh, on the eastern seaboard of what is now the United States. So it's a good case study, and we need to at least pay attention to it because there are others like it. And uh, and maybe what's happening in the McLean Church is something symptomatic behind, underneath it. Some of these same things may be going on. Yeah, you know, it's good. It's good. Uh, you said case study. So it's the data there. I mean, the, the data is there. Comb through it. And um I mean, if, if you think what's going on in that particular denomination is a, a good thing, then I guess you would uh, uh, imitate what's happened. Uh, uh, but if you don't, then maybe we could learn from the data. Exactly. So we moved to Article um, 8. And I, there was it's, yeah, let's see, what's that? One, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, seven, right? Uh, why wokeness is a Christian heresy. And this is by John uh, Stone Street and Glenn. Glenn Sunshine writing in the uh, Colson report in the break um, uh, break point. That's it. Um, the their daily broadcast and white wokeness Christian heresy and uh, he interesting that in this particular article I 
I had I teach church history, and it was one of the things that I teach in it is that one of the things that began to come in early Christianity, if you draw a line on a board and just say uh, and put a zero, one point three hundred at another, and then saying the first three hundred years of New Testament Christianity, um, what was going on in the life of the church? Well, we know that there was a lot of persecution that was going on during that time, and we also know that it was that the Roman Empire, which controlled most of the then known world, was very pagan. Uh, it was controlled by uh, people who were religious and spiritual, but they were not Christian. And uh, yet uh, Christianity mushroomed and grew over time in that. And the question is how they do that. Uh, they Because they didn't have any political power. They were mostly from the socio, lower socioeconomic level. And and uh, so in what way could they, did they influence things? So in this uh, uh, article about the wokeness as a Christian heresy, it um, there's a reference to the work of uh, Tom Holland, who he, they say is a, an atheist historian who describes his feelings about the Greco-Roman world this way. It was not just because the extremes of callousness that unsettled me, uh, but the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. And so he says, what changed? As Holland notes, the difference was Christianity. So here's a man who's professed atheist who has studied or those, that whole period of time. And so what is it that brought about change? He says it was the difference was Christianity. So Christians and Jews believed that all persons were made in the image of God. And thus every person had intrinsic worth and dignity, no matter their race, ethnicity, gender, or strength. On this basis, oppression of the poor and weak were condemned. Neither might nor wealth might uh, made right. Uh, Christianity further emphasized the spiritual and moral quality equality of all people. Not only do we uh, share the same humanity, but we all suffer from the same problem, which is sin and are in need of the same solution, which is salvation through Christ. And the because of these ideas, Christianity is the sole historical source of concept now taken for granted in most of the world, especially in the Western world, where it uh, tended to grow up. And so take it for granted. What are we taking for granted? Human dignity, uh, human equality, uh, the universal human rights. And uh, as not only Tom Holland, but other prominent atheists such as Jurgen uh, Habermas and uh, Luke Ferry uh, admit that these ideas are at the root of our modern concern for the poor and the oppressed. And uh, this is why it is accurate to call wokeness a Christian heresy because to become woke is to try and take away these kinds of things. This is how the article argues and removes the sense of dignity, and it places the emphasis more on the color of your skin, if you're a critical race theory, that uh, it talks about systemic uh, racism and things of that nature, as opposed to dealing with, again, the substance of the issue, which is that we're all sinners and we're uh, broken and fallen, and uh, we, we, we harass each other, we have wars and rumors of wars and all that, and but it's the Christian message of the cross and salvation in Christ, and that we we see it as an important component of 
saying that human beings are important because they're made in the image of God. They Therefore, we're going to treat everyone with dignity, even the person who seems to act in such a contrary way in culture. And so uh, the article then expounds on that thought more, uh, why uh, wokeness is a Christian heresy in that sense, that it's really uh, coming into the Christian faith, but it's actually moving us away from that which is a rock bed position of biblical Christianity. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, this article really makes you think about how grateful you are for Christianity and what it's done for Western civilization, the idea of critical thought, the idea of the golden rule. We actually try to make our laws, or we have in the past, based on this this concept that comes from Christianity, that comes from, you know, as a result of Christ coming to earth, this this now is is a, a new way of thinking. And so it really is a blessing in so real and in a lot of ways we stand on you know the shoulders of giants and and now these we do take them for granted. We absolutely do. And you know we have a culture that will now look at uh you know look at the church and try to you know uh, call it, you know, uh, you know, call us hypocrites or, or say that, you know, we're not loving your neighbor. You know, they'll, they'll adopt. Well, you're supposed to love your neighbor. But uh, when you call out sin from the Bible's point of view, from God's point of view of what he thinks is sin and what isn't. Well, OK, you've you, you're you're now claiming that homosexuality is a sin. Well, you're not loving your neighbor. You know, th- this is what they do. This is what the left does. Um, it, it's the same type of thing, uh, you know, that we're dealing with right now. I think we've dealt with it for the last year, Dominic, with the masks, you know, in, in, a, in a way, not everybody. But, you know, you're dealing with a, a way of thought that would look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they would have more sympathy for the men that threw them in the furnace. They died. You know, they heated the furnace up so hot. The men that threw them in died. Well, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have just complied and showed love for their neighbor, those men that died in the furnace might have gone on to live full lives. This is the way that uh, this is this is the thought that is actually anti, um, you know, Western civilization, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, one more uh, pull quote from the article near the end. It says, in the end, uh, wokeness is built on a worldview without salvation and offers an eschatology with no real hope. Uh, though the proclaimed goal is to end oppression, it's what the late sociologist Philip Reif calls a death work. Uh, it's dedicated to tearing down things, but unable to build or offer anything better. Advocates of critical race theory, for example, argue that although race is a cultural construct, racism is an inevitable and irredeemable trait of certain groups in society, and they cannot offer a vision of the world which, uh, in which this sin is detected, uh, defeated, or redeemed, much less one in which the guilty are forgiven and restored. The best that can be hoped for is to replace one set of powers with another. And that's basically the where it crumbles as a human uh, thought pattern versus what a biblical Christianity teaches. So I encourage you to uh, use this one. I think uh, this article will really stir and instruct in ways that are really, really helpful. 
Okay, number eight this week is uh, take, and it takes a reach or shift, and it's one that we have the concept we've been talking about for a while is from uh, Tim Chalice. Uh, I miss my son today. It's the one year anniversary of his son having died. And so he is writing on this. And one of the things I said from the very beginning when we started reading or posting some of these articles from Tim about how he was handling and how his family's handling the death of his son is that the way he was doing it was really helpful and instructive. He was giving us a window into his own heart and soul and mind in a way that was uh, helpful, it was biblical, uplifting, and yet it showed the real, the reality of grief and the reality of uh, death and how uh, believers handle it. And so I've appreciated his uh, strong faith and yet at the same time, the, the sense of loss. And uh, in this article, he, um, he mentions, you know, that he starts out with a, uh, tear jerker thing that just causes me to tear up. I miss my son today. That goes without saying, I suppose, since I miss him every day. But on this day, the pain is particularly sharp, the ache especially deep, and I miss my friend. I miss my brother. I miss my protege. I miss the son of my youth, the delight of my heart. I miss seeing and hugging him. I miss teaching him and learning from him. I miss the sound of his voice and the crackle of his laugh. I miss all having a son... uh, having a son at all i just plain miss nick and uh i think you can see just feel the pathos of that but how he goes about handling it is so instructive and helpful uh so that any of us uh going through uh walking in that uh, deep uh, shadow or that grief uh the darkness that comes into the soul uh can be encouraged that there is it's not it's not over even in the midst of all the pain. So I really uh, commend him and I thank uh, Tim for being such a, um, uh, you know, teacher through his own experience. And he's not trying to clothe it over or uh, put blow smoke or anything. It's real, it's honest, uh, and it's um, grip, uh, very gripping of the soul and very helpful as well. Yeah, I don't really know how to talk about these Tim Challey's articles anymore because, uh, I mean, they're great. I recommend them, but I just don't feel, (laughs) I just don't feel like I have any authority to comment on them, you know, Mm -hmm. other than just like what you feel internally as an individual when you read this. So it's, if they're good, they're very good articles. So read them for sure. Uh, Absolutely. And there's something to give to friends. And when you're saying, what do I say? Well, sometimes the best thing to do is just be there to give a hug and then say, when you have a moment, here are some articles that you may read to show that uh, you're not alone. And uh, not only is God with you, but here's an individual who uh, feels the same thing, expresses the same things you have. So it can be a ministry uh, through someone in grief. Okay, now article number nine is from our good friend Carl Truman, uh, who writes Two Cheers for Civil Religion, which is an uh, interesting uh uh, kind of article that was in First Things uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he um, basically is saying that there was something about what we had uh, with the old civic civil religion with all of its weaknesses that really gave us a sort of a moral order 
a common moral order, whether people were uh, religious, where they were churched, where they were atheists, sort of like what we just read about Tom Holland, uh, taking note of how uh, you could that there can be a moral impact on culture without saying to someone, if you live morally, you, God's going to be happy with you and pleased, and that's a means of salvation. But it did just give a sense of order and peace to, um, you know, to the uh, to the culture that we uh, grew up with. So it says it strikes me that the old civil religion, with all its weakness, did exert some degree of salutary influence over public spaces, and thus provided at some level protection to the children and families that use them. And it seems that rejoicing in the decline and death of civil religion is only justifiable if what replaces it does a better job. If the replacement does not do so, then such rejoicing is irresponsible. It seems clear that the replacement is not doing a better job. The old civil religion has not uh, now not fallen to Orthodox religion or to vibrant Christianity. No, it has fallen on an anti-culture where anything goes and anyone who objects is villainized. In fact, I would argue that's even worse than that. We have a new civil religion, that of a therapeutic, and it is radically, uh, rapidly colonizing Christianity. So the, you know, I think that's sort of encapsulates what he's talking about. So we have a common culture. The question is the common culture now has shifted from uh, an old civil religion to a new civil religion. And the new civil religion basically uh, is not uh, helpful as the old one was in terms of the con the construct of the um, society and how we interact with one another uh, in polite societies, you would say. So there were certain rules that everyone understood and they were beneficial. Uh, now we don't have that. So the new civil religion is also making rapid gains in traditional Christian communities. And I uh, recently asked whether progressives in the PCA would live up to their own rhetoric, rhetoric of humility. What they Would they listen to the concerns of the majority of the General Assembly regarding the same-sex attraction? Or would they decry their Christian co-laborers as ignorant bigots? The days since have offered a preliminary answer. It will be Twitter that most the it, it will be Twitter that most therapeutic uh, that most therapeutic of contexts where the pursuit a matter with all of the sound bites, caricatures, irresponsibility, but vituperations uh, that sadly mark Christian use of the medium. And so the civil the new is taken over the old. The politeness that uh, the old gave us is uh, now gone, and it just has created more distress. And so Christians are being asked, in what way can we reclaim uh, that old civil religion? Not because we think it's going to get people into heaven, but it gives what Paul says in First Timothy 2 when we are to pray for those in authority over us, it gives that we can live at peace because everyone else is able to live at some modicum of cultural peace. Yes, absolutely. And and if we ever if we ever get that again, we need to. Uh, I mean, I, I guess we have it now, but it's just looking like that we're not going to have it. You know, for uh, foreseeable. I mean, a predictable amount of time. I yeah. nothing that you can count on. That's for sure. Well, and it just again, in teaching church history, I realized things go in a cycle, and that's what we have now. When we have a the, the cycle is turning, where we get so used to something and we begin to 
uh, you know, find difficulties with it. And we say maybe we can improve on it. And unfortunately, as was said by Holland, is what we put in its place or what it was said in the uh, Breakpoint article was the that what replaces is not of any value. In fact, we tear down, but we really don't uh, build up with something new. And so what happens is we're left with the the dregs of the old and we're not building on it to create something new. And so there's confusion and uh, distress and upheaval. So that would so two cheers for civil religion, Carl Truman, article number nine. Number 10 is now a one more summary of the actions of the uh, recent PCA General Assembly. And this time it comes from uh, Brian Chappell, who is the new stated clerk for the Presbyterian Church in America. And so Dr. Chappell writes, as um, all of the stated clerks in the past have done, to give what would, I guess, be sort of the uh, official summary in usually good detail, great detail, and uh, so that you can read it and be helpful. So if you want to find out exactly what's going to be voted on it, uh, set down all the, the phrases and so forth uh, to presbyteries with those amendments and so forth, they're right here in this article. Uh, you just, everything you need is clearly articulated. So we appreciate Dr. Chapel and given this uh, good summary uh, so that you can read through it very quickly and yet uh, at the same time ponder things that and spend more time on other things. And so you get more probably here than almost any of the other summaries that we've produced already. So, Paul, did you learn anything new on that? I, I you know, I don't think I did, because like you said, we've there's been a lot of summaries, uh, but this one does, you know, it was detailed. So, yeah, right. Uh, but it's and good. That's what I'd like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's good to have one that's really detailed. Uh, it's intended for longevity as not just for the moment. So uh, this uh, appreciate the article and the way he did it. Well, uh, Paul, we've got uh, come to the end of the uh, we, quote report and weekly review with these top articles. They were just were across the board and it's just wonderful. And I appreciate uh, you and uh, giving time yes, to uh, enjoy. And so we can stir, stir the mind and get people stir up for when the article comes the articles come out tomorrow. So if you do not receive the uh, newsletter for the Equal Report, just go to theequalreport.com and on the right hand margin, you'll see uh, a place where you can click on it. it says sign up for, for the Equal Report email alerts. And uh, we only use the list for alerts and mostly for the weekly newsletter. And uh, every Tuesday uh, around 11 Eastern, uh, they it clicks on and uh, it will be before you. So you can have time then to look at it, plus rummage through and look at some of the other articles that did make the top 10. So thank you for being a part of this uh, week in uh, the Global Report and Weekly Review. And Paul, thank you for all the work that you do for us. Yes, sir. <laughs>